Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The greatest F1 team. Hello and welcome to part five of a very special seven-part series where we've asked the question, what would the lineup of the greatest ever F1 team look like? From race engineer to team principal, lead driver to chief designer, and even the rarely coveted number two driver spot, we've set out to build an F1 team made up of the best there has ever been. Our in-house panel, made up of all of our global F1 experts, have all picked individuals throughout history that they believe are the greatest of all time. And in this series, we'll be discussing the careers and the worthiness of the individuals that have made it into the top three for each job role. I'm Jess, your host, and today I'm joined by James Allen, John Noble, Alex Kalinalkas, and Roberto Kinkaro. Welcome, guys, and thank you for joining me. Today, you are here to help reveal who we've collectively picked as our number two driver. Now, I feel like this is going to be one of the more controversial elements of this team, but as we've seen countless times, getting the driver pairing and relationship correct is often crucial to the success of a team. So before we reveal our top three in this position, John, why do we have number two drivers in F1? I think the sport's Changed quite a lot. You've got two approaches if you're coming up with the greatest ever F1 team. You either go for the two very best drivers you can have, you know, the, the, the Senna Prost approach, um, or we saw with Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso at McLaren. You know, you put two superstars together and hope that they can get through and deliver you the points. However, putting two drivers like that together can cause politics, can cause friction, can cause trouble, it's harder to manage. So as we see more and more now, and as we've seen the last week with Sebastian Vettel, and Charles Leclerc and why Red Bull don't want Sebastian Vettel alongside Max Verstappen. Teams don't want two alpha males. 
they want a number one driver and a very, very strong, you know, the very best number two you like, if you can get it. He needs to be fast, fast enough to get the wins and results. He needs to be consistent to keep banging in the points, taking points away from your rivals. He needs to be steer clear of politics, not causing trouble. And he needs to bring a good dynamic into the team. Get on with his teammate, get on with the team and push things forward. Less trouble, more results is a winning team. And I think there's another aspect of that as well, which is we've seen quite a lot in the in the Mercedes era, which is when you've got a really quick car, and we saw it with Ferrari as well in the Schumacher era, when you've got a really quick car, uh, it's really important from a strategic point of view as well to have control of the race. So your number two driver protects your number one driver. And where things get really difficult in, a, in an open sort of fight between teams is where the lead driver is isolated because the second driver is underperformed. And therefore, the other team can attack 2v1 on strategy and either undercut or overcut and all that kind of thing. So it's it, the number two driver is actually a critically important role. James, when you need to reduce the gap, when you are not on the top, Probably to have two very good drivers can help the team in order to develop the car, to find the performance. But when you are on the top and when for the driver, for winning the championship means to beat your teammate, then the problem starts. I remember in 2013, Nico and Lewis had a very, had a very good relationship. The problem started in 2014 when the car was for the world championship. In that moment, uh, the relationship became very hard, very strong, because, of course, there was the, t- the target was to beat your teammate. That was the only thing to do if you want to be world champion. It's interesting, this, uh, this question. It's almost a philosophical one, really, because we're thinking as fans, we would take the strongest drivers of any era automatically to be in the best F1 team of all time. But I think you've got to look back at the greatest teams almost statistically from across F1 history. So you think McLaren in the late 80s, Ferrari the early 2000s, the Mercedes team of right now. They have gone on to be extremely successful. But what was the key dynamics in those teams? You look at the Mercedes and Ferrari in particular. You had one driver in particular going, in Ferrari's case, completely dom- dominating. In Mercedes, there was a little bit of to and fro, as we've talked about, with uh, Nico and Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton. And at McLaren, it was almost all-out war, war at times between Alan Prost and Ayrton Senna. But there has been a clear number one established eventually. So it's interesting there that, you know, that is a dynamic that the successful teams have all had. So that's why we should perhaps always think, right, that's what that's what works, even though it perhaps might not be the most exciting or, uh, you know, mouthwatering things that fans and, and, and you could think of on paper. And that's actually really interesting that you brought up the, the Prost-Senna rivalry in particular, because the person in third place in our vote was the man who brought a very different atmosphere to McLaren when he replaced Prost uh, alongside Senna. And that, of course, is Gerhard Berger. So he, when he joined, had won five races at Ferrari. Um, uh, but when he joined in, in 1990, he, he helped ensure that they won the next two constructors titles as Senna's run of... Uh, what seemed like unending success continued. Uh, but he only won two races at McLaren. Perfect partner for Senna after Prost, do we think? Absolutely. And I think also, as we've seen also, kind of with Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas, he, he kind of chilled Senna out a bit. The, the intensity that, you know, maybe held Senna back a little when he was, had that rivalry of Prost was taken away. The stories of Gerhard Berger, you know, super gluing passport photos of girls and stuff into Senna's passport, lobbing briefcases out of helicopter windows. All these jokes, you know, brought a new side to Ayrton. And I think by chilling him out, actually have made him achieve a, a higher level. Uh, and we're seeing that with Lewis as well. I mean, Lewis's best seasons 
uh, have been against Valtteri Bottas, where he feels he's not fighting to be the alpha male. He feels he's there already. Uh, and I think that gives them a freedom to, to step up their game a little bit. And in both those cases you mentioned there, John, the opposition relative to the car gets stronger. So the McLaren in 88, obviously we know the MP44 is completely dominant. As it goes into that era where it's Senna and Berger, the opposition is starting to catch up and we're seeing that now. Okay, Ferrari keep dropping the ball in the, mo- in the modern era and Red Bull are coming back as well. But it's that, it's coming, it's, you know, the, the war between Rosberg and Hamilton happens when the car is very, very strong. So, you know, that's, that, that, that aids, uh, you know, the case for Berger because as the opposition gets stronger... It's, it's harder for the, for the team to win and they still do that. And I think the other thing with Berger is, you know, if you look at Senna, who was a very intense character, incredibly focused, incredibly committed, you know, the team would absolutely bet the house on Senna to get a result. You know, he will get the best result that car is capable of. Um, what Berger brought you was an incredibly shrewd operator I and mean, one of the best businessmen who's ever been a racing driver, if you see what I mean, and also incredibly good around the paddock, all really good at the, what we we talk about with the intangibles when we go back to our sporting director discussion it's a very important part of formula one is how you work things behind the scenes and Berger was was very very strong on that so i think mclaren in that era very much had the bases covered Berger uh, was an example how two teammates can work together but i think the key was that and gerard confirmed this some years ago not a long time ago that he understood that ayrton was simply unbeatable so he realized this he accept that Ayrton was faster than him. And I think that was the key because it's not simple for any driver to accept that your teammate is faster than you. Probably you feel, but you don't admit it. How easy do you think it is for a driver to accept that they're number two in a team? It's extremely hard to accept. And all racing drivers of any quality coming up through the ranks believe that they're the best until the overwhelming evidence persuades them otherwise and some of them even then can't really accept it but I think in a situation like that when you're up against you know Ayrton Senna who's got his unbelievable you know qualifying record and and the things that he could do in a racing car you know it's very very hard not to not to sort of have to face up to reality and I think the interesting thing about Berger in comparison with the other two drivers that we've picked in our top three in this number two category uh, is that he had a, he was a mature driver at this point. You know, he was mature when he was accepting that he was Senna's number two. Whereas the other two were were, were drivers whose whose careers might have developed a bit further had they had they had the, had they had the chance to. Berger won twice with with the McLaren team, and one of those wins was when Senna won the title in in ninety one. And uh, even though Senna looked set to to win that race, he actually waved through Berger at the line. Now, does that show? the respect that Senna and how Senna thought of him or was it a bit of a a pity win? Because we've had those situations before where the number one essentially lets the number two have have their day in the sun. But, But for that example, do we think it was more of a show of respect or a bit of a, sorry, mate, here, you, why don't you have a go? I, I think respect, because, you know, Ayrton was fueled by this, you know, intense passion and desire to win. You know, winning meant everything to him. So to give up a victory like that, I think meant meant a lot and showed how much he appreciated Gerhard as a teammate, how much he realised Gerhard had brought to him and contributed to the team's performance. Um, and it also wasn't done in a way we saw you know, other drivers have given away wins and done it in much more embarrassing circumstances to make it much, much clearer that, you know, they didn't particularly like giving up this win, um, but are doing it anyway. I remember that, uh, uh, of course, in the end, Gerhard Bergen won the Grand Prix in Suzuka, but 
he gave the, the victory to Gerard, but he wanted to show everybody that he was that day the faster on the track. So in some way, he humiliated a little bit Gerard because he recovered a lot of time compared to other to Gerard. And then he showed everybody, okay, you are winning, but I'm offering you the win. And that was typical of Ayrton. Let's move on to our number two, number two driver. Now, I can't imagine that's a position that many would want to uh, want to hold, but I think we'll find later on the reason being uh, that our number one is one of the all-time greats. But let's focus on the number two, number two, and that's Ronnie Peterson. Now, he marked himself out as one of the finest drivers of his era and became the lead guy at Lotus earlier in the 70s. But when you're partnered with Mario Andretti, it's quite tough to, to be able to keep up that level of performance, isn't it? To speak about Ronnie Peterson as a number two is uh, terrible for me. I was, a, uh, I was a very big fan of Ronnie Peterson, but it's a completely different situation at that time compared to now. I don't think now, for example, Carlos Sainz is number two because in the contract there is the condition that is number two. That was the case of Ronnie Peterson. He signed a contract with Colin Chapman when he was the number two on the team. So uh, he had no chance to, 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 to beat Mario Andretti. He must stay behind him. That, uh, that was the contract. And for, for sure, it was a chance for him to win any of some races because the car was fast. But he already knew before the season started he has no chance to win the championship. I think it's completely different the situation now because sometimes, uh, you see last year, for example, with uh, uh, Charles Leclerc and Sebastian Vettel. Vettel started the season as number one, but then on the track, Leclerc showed that the space was often faster than, than Sebastian. So the, 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 the situation changing during the season. Unfortunately, it was not the case for, for, for Ronnie Peterson's story, but uh, I think uh, he was absolutely a top-class guy. And I think in terms of uh, talent, he was... Uh, Absolutely one of the best of this era. Yeah, he was a fantastically flamboyant, exciting driver. Anybody who's not ever had a chance to see any of Ronnie Peterson's uh, style definitely should check out some clips on uh, on YouTube. Very much tail out, kind of Gilles Villeneuve type driver, mind-blowingly quick, uh, according to anybody who, who watched him race. And, he, you know, he, he racked up the wins as well. He had 10 Grand Prix victories in a, in a, in a career and a life that was tragically cut short, twice runner-up in, in the World Championship. So he ticks all of those boxes. But I think also to Roberto's point, it is a very different time because it was probably the most dangerous time to be a Grand Prix driver. That, that period in the early 1970s when, when Peterson came through, which is the kind of the tail end of the Jackie Stewart era, if you want, was incredibly dangerous. And therefore you wanted to have two quick drivers because tragically you weren't sure that both of them were going to make it through the year. So, you know, you wanted to have a, a good chance of, of winning the title with one of them. I wonder whether there's almost a stigma these days about being deferential to uh, a, a stronger teammate, having a number two drivers, just because things have got, things are so much, everything in Formula One now, almost everything is microanalyzed and assessed and debated, particularly strongly on social media. So, you know, if, you, if you're if you admitting, you know, it's in my contract, I can't overtake this guy, things like that are even more unacceptable just because everyone's got a really strong opinion on that. And you think perhaps, perhaps the blame for that was the sort of the debacles that we've seen that this sort of thing can cause. The Ferrari, uh, the Ferrari example is in the early 2000s. You know, Leclerc's come out looking like a hero after last year for essentially disobeying 
those rules and and is applauded for being you know he's the hero he he wants to be the fastest man on track and therefore we should be applauding him but how I mean we're going to go on to talk about who is who's made it as our as our team principal in in a couple of episodes time but how do you how does a team principal and a team in general manage that change in in dynamic if we if if that is what is what is happening like the Ferrari example I think team team principles like the the order to be settled naturally. So you want a, ideally you want a number two who thinks he's as quick as a number one, but is actually two or three temps slower. So it becomes a natural order to things and takes the decision out of your hand. The problem comes when your number two driver that you thought was a number two actually steps up and becomes a number one. And I think you know it's something Ferrari has found with you know Charles Leclerc stepping up and being you know quick quicker than Sebastian Vettel. Um, we see it with. Um, you know, Nico and Lewis Hamilton, when the pair of them are matching each other and being equals, um, that's when the friction comes and that's when the, the team has to step in. And the second you mention the word team orders, you know, fans get upset because they just want to see two drivers gunning it out equally, which I'm afraid is a very, very difficult thing to happen in modern Formula One. I think um, the key to doing well in Formula One is consistency at a high level. That's what marks out you know, the, the, the really special drivers. So someone like an Alonso, for example, was extremely consistent week in, week out. And you take the situation with Rosberg. You know, Rosberg was was a consistent driver, but he, he wasn't as good as Lewis Hamilton. But he was competing with him in those early years that Roberto referenced um, in, in the hybrid Mercedes era at a time when perhaps Lewis wasn't quite always on his A game. And particularly in 2016, he managed to managed to muscle through and, and to win a title. And I think that's one of the key things about, about being a good number two driver, which is, you know, in my if I had been Mattia Bonotto, I think I probably would have taken Ricardo over science in, in that sense, because I think Ricardo's a slightly more consistent driver. And, but I see why they've done it, because science has perhaps got a bit more development to come. Ricardo's probably at the, at the top of, of where he's going to be. But, you know, I would take Daniel because he, he, can, he can take the chances when they're presented to him and he's, and he's a bit more consistent. And that, for me, is a key quality in a number two driver. And the point there about consistency, that's, that's where it's, it brings problems when it comes to team orders. And I think if you, if you look at one very famous example of this, the 2010 German Grand Prix with uh, Massa and Alonso, Massa's behind on the grid, he's behind Vettel and Alonso, he just gets a, a, an amazing start and suddenly puts himself into that leading position. And, he's, and it's, it's looking great. I can remember when I was watching as a student, I was like, this is fantastic, he's back, he's brilliant. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a year to the day to, to his accident, this is a really emotional time. But Alonso comes back at him. Massa's overcome that, the natural order of things where Alonso was that step quicker he'd overcome it for a short time but Alonso was still there and it caused all sorts of issues and it was a really bad look for Ferrari they it meant that, that team orders were, were, were eventually you know they were they were outlawed that things things weren't allowed even though that they made sense in the rules and it's all sorts of all sorts of annoying things and that's a you know that's a good specific race example of where you know the the number two problem can suddenly become suddenly flare up as it were and become an issue the biggest problem for a team principal the worst context he has to manage you when the the driver that on the paper is the slower one, like everybody expected last year with Leclerc, I remember in 2007 with Lewis and Alonso in McLaren, become the faster one on track. It was totally unexpected situation for, for the team. That is the worst context to manage. I think in the end last year, Ferrari tried to help Sebastian uh, in Singapore uh, with a, a better strategy than uh, than Charles, probably that consent him to win the race and uh, 
But in the end, the, the relation was not there. I think for Sebastian, it was impossible to accept to be uh, the same condition or at least a second driver in Ferrari, for sure. It was not what he dreamed to, the situation he dreamed to, to find when he resigned for Ferrari five years ago. No, absolutely. But let's let's move on and find out who we have selected as our number two driver uh, position. And this might seem a bit controversial to some, but I don't think anyone's going to complain about having Sir Sterling Moss in their team. But why is he, Mr. Mr. Motorsport himself, why is he number two? Brilliantly fast. You know, will be there, will deliver you the wins, deliver you the points, bring the maximum to the car. Extremely consistent. Uh, the days he's not winning um, the races, he will be finishing second behind the number one driver. Lack of politics, wouldn't get involved in you know any fight with a teammate, would do the best thing for the team and would bring a brilliant dynamic uh, to the whole whole team. Uh, you know, would happily do what was needed, wouldn't cause a fight, would work with the number one driver and at the end of the day, bring you the championship. He was an out-and-out sportsman. He understood, he, he raced for the for the love of the sport. Of course, he wanted to win and he won a lot. I mean, he won 16 Grand Prix out of 67 starts. And you've got to remember with Sterling Moss that you know, his career was cut short just as he was entering that prime period in uh, in the early 1960s. Um, he would have gone on to be a multiple world champion. Um, and uh, without, in, in my mind, without a doubt, if you look at what happened in 62, 63, 64, etc., he'd have been racing against Jim Clark would have, and those guys. It would have been fantastic. But so we, as we referenced earlier on, unlike Berger and more like Peterson, you know, he was building up to being uh, possibly a champion, probably a champion, but because he had that accident that sort of basically ended his career, he never got the chance to. He never got the chance to see it through. So it was interesting that I did an event with him and uh, Sterling, uh, Sterling Moss and, uh, and Lewis Hamilton in 2007, when Hamilton quite early in the year, when Hamilton was ostensibly the number two driver to Alonso at McLaren. And it was really, really interesting because Sterling said that he, he felt he saw a lot of himself in Lewis. So without wishing to be big headed, a lot of natural talent, a real ability to drive a racing car, to feel a racing car, tremendous speed. And obviously youth at that time in, in Lewis's case. And he felt that the dynamic with, with him and uh, Alonso was a bit like the one between Sterling and Fangio at the beginning of his career in the 1950, 1955 at, at Mercedes, where Fangio was racing against him and, and Moss beat him at, at uh, Aintree at the British Grand Prix famously. Never quite sure whether Fangio gifted it to him, like Senna clearly did with Berger, or whether Moss had actually beaten the maestro on the day, you know, the greatest driver of his era. Um, and, and I think that's a lovely little twist. And even to his dying day, he never really was 100% sure whether, whether that win had been gifted to him. But I really love that parallel that Moss saw himself with Hamilton. Hamilton went on to become what he's become. And obviously Moss maybe would have done, maybe not. I mean, this is, this is an example of the classic problem with a Formula One debate, especially when we're comparing eras, is because things are just so different. For example, we know that Sterling Moss lost the world title in 1958 after he'd argued against the penalty for the eventual champion Mike Hawthorne at the Portuguese Grand Prix. It's very hard to imagine any driver in 2020 doing that. You know, we hear them on the radio during the race now arguing that their opposition should be penalised. So, the, you know, it, I totally agree. Any team is better off with Sterling Moss in it number one or number two driver and obviously number two driver in this case but it's just interesting that one of his greatest strengths that real 
gentlemanly sporting demeanor and and real sense of fair play that he had is 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 key to that era and and and, and the later ones as well of course but particularly in 19 in the 1950s that's what really made him stand out it'd be interesting to to you know to consider whether he'd be like that in the modern era but i think a team principal that uh, doesn't consider stealing moss as a a good driver for the team must change his job because I think uh, it's, it's not our championship only in the book, but I think for uh, all the motorsport fans, uh, Stealing was uh, is a world champion. The way he lost the, 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 sometimes the, the world champion, like in uh, 1958 for one point after winning four races, uh, it's just a question of luck sometimes. You have to, to, you have to underline this, this, this aspect. Uh, uh, I think that the approach, the, 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 the way he loves motorsport, it's something that is not usual to find in the in the, in, the, in the motor racing. But for me, it's absolutely no doubt. You you must have still in Russia your team. We're now closing in on our full team now, uh, and I get the feeling you guys at home are going to enjoy how we cap this all off. We've only got our lead driver and team principal to find. Who did our experts pick? you'll know soon let us know if you agree with our team as it's shaping up so far let us know in the comments and make sure you're tweeting us Uh, but until next time where we will be picking our lead driver we'll see you soon with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.